Thank you, especially to new family and friends joining us on what some people say it's like the Super Bowl of the Church of Jesus Christ, Easter Sunday. Uh, I am amazed that I get to answer this question, and I will share this with you, why this, uh, this speaker, this pastor, Harold, uh, why he is a Christian. Why am I a Christian? I'm thrilled to do it. Uh, we're going to project some Bible verses if you have your Bibles, please turn there with me. It's going to be from the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 15, four verses, verses 3 through 6. 1 Corinthians, this is Apostle Paul, his first letter to the church at Corinth, chapter 15, verses 3 through 6. I'll read it for us. For I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. This is God's word. Why am I a Christian? First, this book, the Bible, the Holy Scriptures, explains my condition better than any other book. The Bible explains my condition better, better. Uh, the Bible reveals that all human beings are capable of such brilliance, beauty, creativity, goodness, I get a taste of experiences like that at a concert. Some of these concerts with the, the sights and sounds and the choreography and the music kind of owning your, your, your blood and pumping through your veins. Uh, I will admit to you, a lot of concerts, especially with like Bono as a lead singer, feels like a religious experience. Um, I know that Coachella last year, a lot of people said, Oh, I, I was near the front row and there was a drop of sweat from Beyonce. It fell on me. Beyonce's sweat fell on me. Like my life is over. It's complete. I get that. You know the Bible gets that? The Bible says that human beings are made in the very image of God. We are created, but we are the pinnacle and the chief of all the creation. And because we're made in the image of God, you and I will be tempted to worship them. We will be tempted to worship them. Psalm chapter 8, the psalmist declares, you have made us a little lower than angels and we are crowned with glory and honor, with dominion over all of creation. The Bible explains human capabilities, brilliance, the heights. An archbishop by the name of William Temple, he once observed, I am greater than the stars, for I know that they are up there, but they do not know that I am down here. At the same time, you and I are more complicated and corrupted than we know. We really are. Because of 
what the Bible describes as the fall. <laughs> fall from what? Fall from what? Where are we falling from? Well, it used to be we were in a right relationship with God. But we have fallen from that because we tried to replace God. And once you and I try to live a life where you replace God or independent of God or apart from God, all kind of fallenness breaks loose. That's why, if you're honest with yourself, you're not right with other people because you're not right with God. You're not right in your own consciences because you're not right with God. And the whole created order is out of whack. It's not right. Why? Because we're not right with God. We're made in the image of God. We're tempted to worship human beings as God, but we have fallen. We can build hospitals, and then an entire nation can be responsible for the Holocaust. Build majestic, architecturally stunning cathedrals, and then try to turn, burn them down. A 37-year-old was arrested this week in New York of trying to burn down a cathedral in New York. I woke up this Easter morning. We can build churches. We can build churches, gather and grow churches. But in Sri Lanka, someone planted bombs. They specifically targeted Christians on Easter Sunday, and over 200 have been killed, over 400 have been wounded, the latest I read. You may say at this point, oh, please, pastor, whoever you are, that's crazy people out there. That's all the crazies out there. That's not me. It's not what the Bible explains. Here's what the Bible explains. There is a Jekyll and Hyde in each of us. The Bible explains there is a Jekyll and Hyde in each of us, in each of you. And if you do not know this about yourself, you do not know yourself yet. According to Jesus Christ, the greatest problem in the world, I mean, the root, this is the problem. And if we could just solve and cure this, the world would be a better, maybe even perfect place. The Gospel of Mark chapter 7, verses 20 to 23. Here's what Jesus taught. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, next slide please. What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within. And they defile a person. Jesus taught the greatest problem in the world is not external, it's not circumstantial, it's not conditional, it's, it's not what the government failed to do, although that might be part of the problem, but Jesus talks about it as internal and intensely personal, that it's from within, it's already been there. Uh, we have people here who work for public relations and communications, and I've talked to some of my good friends because after almost every scandal of a politician, a rapper, a football star, or someone like a billionaire, and they get caught in something very embarrassing that's going to threaten their business, 
It's the only reason they're going to care is because it threatens their office or the business. I've asked some PR agents, like, why do most of them always turn around and they say, well, that wasn't really me. Have you noticed that? A lot of people after scandals, after they get caught, they happen to get caught, they're like, well, you know, that wasn't really me. Well, in this day and age with technology and video cameras, um, hey, we can all see, no, that was you. <laughs> that was really you. Are you telling me someone looks just like you? Was there an imposter? No, we can tell it was you. Here's what the Bible explains. The real you, the real you, the actual you, do you know that the real you just happens to come out when you get really offended? Do you know that the real you, which has kind of been hiding and just kind of behaving at best, it comes out when you get angered or offended or disrespected? Do you know the Bible explains that if you knew, things would never be found out. If you had total secrecy and confidentiality, what would you do? The Bible explains my condition better than any other book. C.S. Lewis, who was an esteemed English professor, without any criminal record that I know of, here's what he admitted to. For the first time, I examined myself with a seriously practical purpose. And there I found what appalled me. A zoo of lusts, a bedlam of ambitions, a nursery of fears, a haven of fondled hatred. My name was Legion. Do you know what Legion means? It's a name for multiple demons. Multiple demons, multiple evils, multiple vices. Things that are already in here that oftentimes I just haven't gotten the ability or the chance to do with my hands. The book of James, which is in the Bible, he says, you know, at one point we can praise God and sing beautiful songs to God and just like we did in the last 20 minutes or so. And, but right after this, on the way home, with the same mouth that praised God, you can tear down God's creation. You can spew such hateful, destructive, demonic, and racist things. My friends... This book, the Holy Bible, you should really read it thoroughly. Ask every question of it. But as you do so, I assure you, the Bible will explain you better than you. The Bible not only captures your past and present, but the Bible actually predicts your future. The Holy Bible is not overly optimistic or utopian. The Bible is not too pessimistic or nihilistic. I have found it to be perfectly realistic. For all of our advances in science and technology and medicine and human rights, the Me Too movement, and we could venture and travel even into space, the question remains though, who can really get a handle on the human heart? Who can really figure out the human heart? There's an Old Testament prophet by the name of Jeremiah. 
And in chapter 17, inspired and filled by the Spirit of God, here's what he declared. Chapter 17, verses 9 and 10. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. Now here's the first step. Here's the first step and the most crucial step toward Christian faith. It is to begin to admit that your anthropology is all off. That human beings are capable of figuring almost everything in the world, the one thing human beings cannot really figure out is their own human hearts. Do you know why? The Bible describes the human heart is so self-obsessed. It is so self-centric. It's so neurotic. It's so sick. It's slippery, and it'll trick and deceive you. Your and my problem, our condition in our human hearts is so desperate, you can never really figure it out. Who can figure it out? I, the Lord, search the heart. And the first step toward coming to Christian faith, believing and worshiping Jesus, or even needing Jesus as a Savior, is to admit, I need God to tell me and show me things I cannot see for myself. I need the Bible. I need the Bible. Because it explains my condition better than any other book. That's first of why I am a Christian. Here's second. Here's second. Jesus is unique. Jesus is unique. Utterly unique. This week, our pastoral staff guided our church along in Passion Week on devotionals in the final week. It's the culmination, the most important week of the entire life of Jesus Christ. The Gospels concentrate the majority of the content on the final week of Jesus Christ called the Passion Week. On Wednesday, we read John chapter 12, verses 7 and 8. And here is, I wrote that devotional. Here's something brand new to me. It struck me this week for the first time. Jesus says, the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. John chapter 12, verses 7 and 8. Wow, I never noticed this statement. Jesus said, the poor you always have with you, but you will not always have me. Here's what Jesus is saying. Um, if you don't pay attention to me more than the poor, here's what Jesus said. You should pay more attention to me than the poor. You should pay more attention to Jesus Christ than any good cause or else you're really not going to help the poor and your good cause is not going to really end up good. Now, who in the world can claim something like that today? Jesus says, any good cause, even helping the poor, being humanitarian, winning a Nobel Peace Prize, Jesus is saying, you got to pay more attention to me. Who claims that and gets away with it, let alone worship for it? Jesus Christ routinely claimed he is divinity, he's perfect, he's the son of God, and he's going to come back and judge the whole world. Like all of history is going to bend the knee to him. Who gets away with claiming that and then, you know the enormous difficulty of people who are closest to you? To get them to actually believe that about you? 
Well, his own mom did and his own brother did. His brother was James who wrote a book of the Bible. Jesus is unique. He's just unique. Jesus was born in the context of three great ancient cultures, Hebrew, Greek, and Roman. Jesus was born in the context of three great ancient cultures. The Hebrews were enamored, and they always talk about that their ideal was symbolized by light, light. The Greeks, known for their philosophers and the scholars and scribes, their ideal was in knowledge, how much you know, how much you read, how much you can argue. What about the Romans, the Roman Empire? What was their ideal? What was it? The glory of Rome. Oh, it's all about the glory of Rome. Three ideals of three great ancient cultures. Apostle Paul, a New Testament author of most of the books, was Hebrew by birth, a citizen of Rome, and raised in a Greek city. Here's what he wrote in the second letter to the Corinthians, chapter 4, verse 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus. Apostle Paul is pronouncing Jesus is the embodiment of every ideal. Jesus alone is the fulfillment of your and my deepest desires and dreams. Jesus can fulfill every culture throughout every generation. My friend, did you know that Jesus Christ is the only one on the other side of the rainbow, over the rainbow and on the other side? The only thing who broke through from the other side. And when you meet him and you taste what he's really like, he's the only person who will never let you down. I'm a Christian because the Bible explains my condition better than any other book. I'm a Christian because I worship and follow Jesus because he is utterly unique. Here's third, here's third. Changed lives. Changed lives. This is why Christ Central as a church exists. We exist to see lives changed as Christ Jesus becomes central to everything. So far in my lifetime, and I was a history major and I've read in my lifetime and what I've read, I haven't seen any other religion, philosophy, power, or program deliver more people from selfishness, superficiality, or slavery to our own desires and addictions, which are self-destructive. I have not seen any person, program, power, force, or thing change more lives than Jesus Christ. Jesus changes more lives in greater ways than anything else ever. The Church of Jesus Christ is founded on changed lives. Uh, Peter, Apostle Peter, who was identified and called, Peter, you will be the rock. You're going to be the bedrock. We think of Dwayne Johnson, right? The rock. But we think of the church. Who is the foundation? Oh, Jesus said, Peter, you will be that rock. 
What was Peter like? On the final night when Jesus was betrayed, he was straight scared, so scared, so scared, just a coward. Uh, he really cared about what people thought about him. He was really cared about social approval. He was scared about his own skin. He thought that he might be uh, arrested and tortured and die too. So when people asked him, weren't you with that guy, Jesus, who's right now being arrested and put on trial? He said, no, no, no. He said it three times, publicly, publicly. So the coward, the traitor, Jesus changes and he becomes the rock. Paul, the author of the book we just read, 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, the foremost missionary, defender of the Christian faith, and suffered immensely for Jesus and his church. Do you know what he did for a living? He was the guy that would plant bombs at Sri Lanka. He was a terrorist. Paul, formerly Saul, used to imprison and persecute and terrorize anyone who would think that Jesus is the way. But Jesus changed his life. And he became the most prolific author of the New Testament. Jesus Christ is in the business of changing lives. Uh, one woman shared how she came to Jesus after assuming five different identities. She used to be very moral because she grew up in a conservative church. If you grow up in a conservative church, you're almost kind of forced to be moral, at least externally, but that put a lot of pressure on her. Then she left the church. She kind of broke out, broke free, and she got into romantic relationships. At first, she felt good about herself because she was moral, but now she felt really good about herself because somebody loved her. But she found herself staying too long in relationships, these romantic and sexual relationships, even abusive ones. So some friends of hers came along and they told her, you can't build your life on the love of men. You got to go get a career, be an independent woman. So she did. She got a career. She made a lot of money. But then she found herself just as destroyed when her career suffered as much as she got destroyed in breakups. Her heart was never safe. It was still not safe. Then someone else came along, told her and said, you're working too hard. You know what you really need to do with your life? You need to care for people. You need to help the poor. So she got involved with visiting prisons and relieving the poor. But then she found herself exhausted, unfulfilled. Until this woman heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. And here's what she realized. Quote. First I thought I was somebody because I was moral. Then I thought I was somebody because I was beautiful. Then I thought I was somebody because I was successful. Then I was a somebody because I was helpful. The gospel showed that she was trying to save herself all along trying to gain an identity for herself. She thought she was somebody only if, fill in the blank, only if. It was all based upon her own performance. Instead, when she heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, she trusted in Jesus, in the performance of Jesus, who gave up his life for her, and so she gave up her life for him, and she began to experience a whole new identity. 
And the new identity and a safe heart is received, it's never achieved. This woman knew now that she was a somebody into forever because God so loved her that he would send down his own son, Jesus Christ, to die for her and bring her back to himself. The, the church, the church is uh, comprised of changed lives and changing lives. The church presupposes it. One of those is going to be baptized and confirmed today. I was talking to him just on Good Friday service, and I read it in his story of grace. He said, in his small group, the questions he had about Christian faith were answered. And in his small group, that's when it really brought clarity and understanding of what it means to be a Christian. And we celebrate six today here at Fulton and Artesia. All, all six are very recent to this church. Some of whom are very recent and new in their faith and conversion to Jesus Christ. I'll tell you, how do you change? You know how you change most? When you show up, stick with, belong to, serve and get served and start to love and be loved by this community, a group of people called the Church of Jesus Christ. Because the Church of Jesus Christ is just a collection of people who are changing. Changing when Jesus is central. It was two or three weeks ago that my wife, Sunny, was just in that one mood where she was prepping Taylor, our oldest daughter. Hey, Taylor, in case I die, this is what you got to do. So Sunny was trying to prepare Taylor. Taylor, uh, you got to learn how to handle the finances because you know dad doesn't know how. And do you know how Taylor responded to mom? She said, mom, don't worry. The church is going to take care of us. Don't worry too much, Mom. This church is going to take care of I got too many aunts and uncles here. My family and I have been utterly loved and changed by you, by you. People who are being changed by the love of Jesus Christ. I am a Christian because the Bible explains my condition better. I am a Christian because Jesus is utterly unique. I am a Christian because so many changed lives, starting with mine. Here's fourth. Here's reason number four. Probably should be reason number one. It is the most important reason if I had to rank them in priority. Jesus actually got up from death. Jesus got up from death. Every religion, every fanciful story or philosophy out there wants to talk about the afterlife or give you hope beyond the grave. Oh, it's good. It's a good attempt. Because we're all wired to think about it and wonder beyond it. But only Christianity presents a historical person who died and rose and got up from death. Only Christianity presents an historical person who did get up from death. At Easter week of 2005, the magazine called Newsweek, a secular author, 
he concluded, after looking at all the historical data surrounding the birth and explosion of the Christian religion, all the historical data surrounding this supposed resurrection of their Messiah, Jesus Christ, here's what the secular author concluded. He concluded, well, the resurrection probably and most likely happened. Uh, the author doesn't believe in Jesus yet, but he says, well, historically, logically, most likely uh, the resurrection happened. Why? Why did he conclude that? Because there's no possible alternate explanation for the birth of Christianity than that people saw and believed and followed a risen Christ. You see, listen, my friends, this morning. Listen. Whatever it would take to get you to believe in a miracle that a dead man could come back to life, who happens to have claimed that he's the son of God and predicted he would do it. Whatever it would take, I think about how much it would take, right, for you and I to get to believe that today. Here's what I want you to believe. You don't have to believe this yet, but you got to concede this part. Whatever it would take for you to believe that Jesus Christ rose from death, believe in a miracle, whatever that would take for you today, happen to them. That happened to them. And believe me, it's not like the early followers were believing in miracles, naive, dumb, and their worldviews almost positioned them to believe in a miracle like that. No, go read history, please. None of them were positioned for it. It was just as miraculous and surprising to them as it would be to you and I today. What alternate explanations are there for the birth and the explosion of Christianity? What other alternate explanations are there? I'm going to list them all real quick. One would be it's a fraud. It's a fraud. It's a conspiracy. Apostle Paul read in our passage, though, wrote in our passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, 15, he goes, but uh, he appeared to more than 500 people, and in Paul's day, you can go talk to them. Many of them are still alive. There's too many living witnesses left. If you think this is fake news, a ginormous fraud, there were too many living witnesses left when Paul wrote his letter, it could have been debunked. All frauds come to an end quickly when you disprove it. This was never disproven. And then moreover, how many people do you know would go and die for a lie? How many people would go through the whole charade? Like they made it up. Oh, it just really would be nice if Jesus did rise from death and I like the memory of it and it would be a great power religion now. We can take over the whole world if we came up this new movement and kind of just fraudulently said, oh, there was a miracle. How many of you then would go through the suffering and the torture of even dying for your faith? This is one popular alternate theory. It's a fraud. Here's second. A real theory. Swoon theory. The swoon theory says Jesus Christ didn't actually physically die on the cross. It's indisputable there was a Pontius Pilate. It's indisputable there was a Jesus of Nazareth. Indisputable he taught and he had a ginormous following. What might be disputable is, well, did he really die on the cross and did he resurrect from death? The swoon theory says he did not die. He really didn't end up dead on the cross. Well, my friend, if that's the case, if he didn't really end up dead on the cross, you know he had to end up dying somewhere. 
I mean, before he ended up dying somewhere, he had to roll out of that tomb, roll away the stone to fend off the Roman guards, hide from all the disciples, because the disciples aren't going to keep him in secrecy and then all of a sudden die for him as a resurrected Lord. Where did he go? Like, where did he die? Like, where's the body? And do you know, my friend, if anyone could produce the dead body of Jesus Christ today with that DNA, Christianity would collapse right now. We're done. It's over. It's over. If the swoon theory is true, that Jesus Christ really didn't die, but he ended up going off somewhere and then he did die, well, we should be able to at least find that body. You know, a lot of people were looking, about, looking for him. He was kind of uh, controversial in his day. Here's a third alternate theory. Here's a third alternate theory. This is given by educated, elite people of the academy, my friends. I'm quoting historians right now. Mass hallucinations. Mass hallucinations. Drug trips moods, emotions, just capture the crowds. And of course, we all imagined, we all imagined that Jesus came back from death. Here's a question. Why is it that only this one continues? Why is it that the belief of a historical, actual bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ from death, how come this one not only continues, but continues to explode until today. Well, I'll tell you, the Christian explanation, the biblical explanation, is not foolproof, of course not, but it's most reasonable. It's not foolproof, but it's most reasonable. I invite and welcome anyone to give me an alternate viable, historically viable theory and explanation of what happened to the empty tomb and the missing body and the rise of Christianity. I think I've exhausted them all right here, but please teach me. I want to learn a new one. Because up to this point, I think the Christian explanation is most reasonable. And here's what it comes down to. Here's what it boils down to, my friends, this morning. Here's what it boils down to. If... Jesus Christ rose from death. Changes everything. Apostle Paul puts it in reverse. If Jesus Christ didn't rise from death, Christians are wasting their lives away. We're still in our sins. Preachers are preaching in vain. If Jesus Christ did not rise from death, Christians are wasting their lives But if he did, but if Jesus Christ did rise from death, my friend, you are utterly wasting your life apart from him. If Jesus Christ did rise from death, your life makes no sense. It's foolish. It's the height of foolishness. And you must give an account of your life before the risen Christ who will come back and judge all in righteousness and justice and glory. My friend, I'm a Christian today because I believe in miracles. Yes, I do. I believe in the miracle that human beings could exist on this planet. I think that's a miracle. I think it's cosmically, mathematically a miracle. I think it's also a miracle that I get to love people and people get to love me. I can't believe people could love me. That's a miracle. So I also happen to believe that God 
was born in human flesh in Jesus Christ, the incarnation. He lived a perfect, blameless life, died a cruel death. And the miracle of that he rose from death to signal and to prove to all, to prove to all, um, you'd better really listen to me and your life better come under submission to me. Jesus got up from death. Jesus got up from death. I'm not a Christian because of how I feel on a certain day. I'm not a Christian because I just so want it to be true. I'm not a Christian because of all the benefits and the blessings. Oh, there are a lot. I'm not a Christian because I get surrounded by Christian people who are so good to me and my family. Do you know, ultimately, I'm a Christian because I think it's true. I think it's utterly true. I think it's most reasonable. And because Jesus rose from death, he's coming back. Here's reason number five, and we'll close with this. Why am I a Christian today? Jesus loves me still. This Jesus is not a historical figure or a theory to me. No, 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 my friend. When you meet any genuine Christian, Jesus is very real to them. And he loves me still. I became a Christian early elementary school. Not because I was born into it. I did grow up in a church, but not because both of my parents were Christian. And not because I was coerced into it. My dad went to church his entire life. Far more impact upon me was not going to church my whole life, that I was born into the church. It was seeing my dad change early in junior high. Oh, God is real. Jesus is real. I can't believe my dad is an utterly different dad. That had a far more profound impact upon me. Also, I did not become a Christian because of uh, like religious sensitivity or my morality or my smarts or my decision-making or my law-keeping. Oh, trust me. I did not become a Christian because Harold was such a good, good boy. You see, what I'm trying to tell you is I really can't account for why I became a Christian. I didn't become a Christian because of Eastern causes or Western causes. In Eastern culture, it says, well, you just... Adopt the religion that your parents and grandparents adopted. I mean, what they believe. They don't kind of force you. And you just kind of grow up. You're born into Christianity. You got to become Christian. That's not me. It was not familial. It's not cultural. At the same time, in Western cultures, it say, well, it's all about my choice. Individual choice. I, I, I figured it out. I came to Jesus and I prayed to him. No. Do you know that in 1 John chapter 4, verse 10? It explains again, not only my human condition better, but the Bible explains better how I came to Christ. Ultimately, is because Jesus loved me long before I loved him. Not my parents, not my upbringing, not my religiosity, not my morality, not my law keeping. Jesus, he loved me before I could love him. And today... I still get to be a Christian who worships and loves and follows Jesus because he loves me still. He loves me still. Even after countless number of times when I do not love Jesus back, 
when I do not love him much at all, if at all. And one of the greatest ways that God showed me that he loves me still was in college. Ironically enough, God showed his love for me in allowing my dad to collapse, suffer an aneurysm, and die midway through college. And what Jesus taught us to pray, I want you to all pray like this, if you're Christian believers. Our Father who art in heaven. Do you know that in losing my dad, God really did become my heavenly Father? That I got to experience something so personal and palpable that his love was for real to me. And the love of God as my heavenly father which started to pour down upon me which I do not deserve redirected my drive. You know, like any other college student. Hey, I wanted to make a name for myself, make some money, make a mark on the world. There's nothing wrong with that. When God showed me his greater love and he became his father, he just redirected those drives. And his love is making me new, making me new. So I would make a name for him. (laughs) Spread his kingdom. Make a mark on the world for the sake of Jesus Christ. And it is his love from that point all the way until today, oh, believe me, where he plunges me, like lifts me up out of where sometimes I feel like I'm drowning, drowning from depression or or bitterness or guilt or self-pity. His love rescues me. And from that point in midway in college, here's what his love did. You know, when I'm in good condition, the love of God my Father does make me feel. It makes me feel. I can get through anything and I can get back up from anything. As long as God is my dad. Jesus loves me still. He loves me still. Truth be told, if you knew, if you knew, Everything that goes on in this head. Every desire and intent of this heart. And just what he has done. You'd never come back to this church. You wouldn't even want to be around me again. My sins are so great and grievous that it breaks the heart of God, that it offends his holiness. And it did kill Jesus and it crucified him on a cross. It was my sins that put him there. But when everybody would leave, nobody would stick around. Nobody would want to be around a person like this. I do know someone who does stick around. He stays when everybody leaves. His love is enduring. His love is greater. He loves me still. Here's a summary of my whole life. My sins are so great and grievous that it nailed Jesus to a cross. But the love of Jesus Christ is greater and more glorious for me still that he would rather give up his life than take mine. Jesus Christ, the love of Jesus Christ for me is so great that he would give up his life rather than take mine.
So here it is this morning. Forgiveness is God's greatest gift because it is our greatest need. Forgiveness is God's greatest gift because it is your and my greatest need. Oh, I hope I'm talking to somebody today. I hope the Holy Spirit is talking to somebody today. I hope it's clear and it resounds in someone's heart today. Do you need to be forgiven? Is there anyone here who needs to be forgiven? Is there anyone here who needs to experience the love of God? For real, personal, and palpable. Do you want to know the forgiveness and the love of God? You go to Jesus. You go to a risen Jesus. You give him your sin, and he gives you his salvation. You give him your ruin, he gives you his redemption. You go to Jesus. I have, and I still do until today. That's why I get to be a Christian. Jesus loves me still. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that on this day where we celebrate and worship Jesus, who poured out his life, poured out his blood, in total for the forgiveness of sins. I pray, oh now, oh Lord, for anyone who needs the forgiveness of Jesus Christ, bring them to yourself. Lord, lead them, help them to pray. Lord Jesus, I come to you. I confess that you are God and Savior. I give you all my sin. Please save me, forgive me, and love me. I want to live for you. Lord, would you produce and bring all to pray that prayer today for the first time or to pray it once again. For the glory of Christ, thank you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen, amen.